I have to know, what did you eat? Well, I definitely try to involve myself in whatever local cuisine I can. I have had enough Whataburger over the course of the last five, ten years or so that I skipped that part of the Texas experience, but definitely had really good Tex-Mex food, a uh, place recommended and uh, sponsored, shall we say, by D3Football.com superfan and former Around the Region columnist Ron Berger, so I was very happy about that. Ended up with Ended up finding some really good barbecue to have on Saturday afternoon. Also, do not recommend barbecue if you are trying to type and tweet and all sorts of things where, you know, the things that um, the things that are on the ribs get onto your fingers. It's been a while since I've been in San Antonio, but if I'm there, I'm doing Tex-Mex, breakfast tacos, and barbecue. Those are the three musts, and then if I have more time, then we can we can explore what else there might be. You know who has more time in San Antonio? Frank Rossi, send your breakfast suggestions to at Frank Rossi on X. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years. We've had a podcast since 2007. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, week two, just like week one, chock full of top-ranked games. You found yourself at a Trinity football game and big results all over the place again to talk about this week. Yeah, at Trinity for a football game for the first time since 1997. Have seen Trinity, of course, play in other venues. One of them, of course, being the Amos Alonzo Stag Bowl. I know you said last week that the game of the week is wherever I'm at. I appreciate the concept. I know there were better games also on the Saturday in Division Three football, but there were a lot of people there very interested to see this game, very interested to see does Trinity finally get over the hump against Mary Harden Baylor, something they had not done since they went to the Stag Bowl back in 2002. We will talk extensively about this game coming up in just a bit. There were a couple of other really interesting games, frankly, ones that didn't know were going to be interesting. They became interesting late at night. We'll talk about those. Uh, we'll talk about a game that was supposed to be interesting and then in the second half got very uninteresting. I'm talking about these in vague terms, but I'm talking about Eastern getting the first win in program history. I'm talking about UW-Whitewater just walking away, running away, pounding the rock away from the Johnnies of St. John's, and we will talk about much more here across the course of this podcast. We'll chat with Billy Crocker. He's the head coach at Eastern in our Fast Five segment. Talk about the quick turn from starting a football program to playing game one last week to playing game two this week and getting a W. Big win for the Eagles of Eastern University. And we have a four-person roundtable to talk about the game between Trinity and Mary Harden-Baylor coming up in just a little bit as well. 
But before we go any further, I want to thank the sponsor of this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, and that is D3Photography.com. So you may see D3Photography.com on Twitter. You may see us reference them in our photo credits on the website. They actually take even more photos than we are able to credit them for because the Presto Sports Platform, blah 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 not really great with photo credits, but we credit them every single time that it uh, seems particularly possible um lots of people think that d3 photo is a part of d3sports.com i would say you know look at the look at the logo if it looks different than ours then it's probably not ours Uh, you'll find photo galleries from a number of games even a number of games this week on uh, d3photography.com from division three football games and also other sports but if you're looking for photos from uw whitewater st john's or Bethel Wartburg or Catholic Randolph-Macon or Pomona Pitzer-Carlton or Hardin-Simmons UW Lacrosse or Johns Hopkins Christopher Newport that is your place to go and of course Greg it's also the place that we go often when we need file photos to use on the websites absolutely you can see the great work that the people at d3photography.com do on our website I get emails from games that they have attended with uh, you know, lists of, of, you know, photo books of, of what they've done at their games. Always great work from those individuals. And, you know, if you've got players at games that they have been to and you're interested in action photos, high quality, d3photography.com is the place to go. I know I mentioned a lot of kind of Midwest schools in the uh, list of games from this past week, but also other schools they've covered this season. Just this season, remember, we're two weeks in, right? Guilford, Greensboro, North Carolina Wesleyan. Puget Sound, Lewis and Clark, Shenandoah, Muhlenberg, Moravian, Methodist, Rowan, uh, the list. This doesn't go on much further than that because we're only two weeks into the season, but you've got a number of places you can go. Also, the folks at d3photography.com have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Yeah, this is how you sponsor a podcast. You have a discount code. So, Use the discount code or the coupon code D3Football to get 10% off of all of your orders of photo prints or digital downloads when you go to D3Photography.com. And that is the letter D, the number three, photography.com. Thank you for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Now back in the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. And now we're coming to you from San Antonio, Texas. I'm with Frank Rossi of In the Huddle. Riley Zayas of True to the Crew, and I'm with Corey Hogue of Dave Campbell's Texas Football, where we were all here for this big game, and yes, just as much as last week's podcast was very much Johnny's, 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 this is going to be very Texas, 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 Texas. I wanted to thank each of you for joining me, and then I'm going to throw it open for thoughts on the 35-16 to win by Trinity against Mary Harden Baylor, starting with Frank. My thought is uh, congratulations, Trinity, honestly. Uh, this is the monkey that's been on their back. A couple of years ago, we thought it was maybe a fluke of sorts, that maybe UMHG was underplaying uh, in that game and not uh, being opportunistic at all. Uh, last year, when we saw them go up against each other, it was much more even. It felt like they belonged. This year, they came, come in as the favorites, basically, in this game, and they actually win the game. Uh, there were points where we were a little bit – yeah, concerned, I think, about whether or not that was going to actually happen because uh, you know, I think they were getting in their own heads a little bit at times, Trinity, but they were able to seal the deal, so it was important, I think, for a program to be able to do that after the last couple tries. Riley, you've seen more Mary Harden-Baylor athletics in the last couple of years than 
almost everybody else in the world combined. I uh, really want your thoughts about what uh, went down here this evening. Yeah, you know, to be honest, coming out of that loss to River Falls last week, I think UMHB was looking for improvement. And, and what we saw was an improved effort, right, from them against a very good Trinity team. I think what happened was as you progressed throughout the game, Trinity's offense was working on, you know, getting those passes five to ten yards down the field. And that's an area where UMHB's defense has struggled uh, both last week and even into last season. So I think Trinity was able to make those adjustments at halftime. And the biggest thing for me, shutting UMHB out in the second half, that was a big, big deal for Trinity. UMHB went into halftime with some momentum. Um, the offense was starting to click, and Trinity shut them down in the second half. That seemed to be the difference to allow Trinity to pull away in this one. I was most impressed with, with how they won the game. They were the most physical team. They were the more dominant team. Anyone watching that game did not go, oh, Mary Harden Baylor had, could have won. I, I just didn't get that feeling tonight. It, it, they felt in control almost the whole time. And, and then for Mary Harden Baylor, they got problems on the offensive line and, and they need some, some speed at receivers still. It's not often that somebody out-physicals Mary Harden Baylor, right? The teams that can do it, uh, you can count on one hand, and pretty much all of them have won national championships in the last five years because of it. Yes, like Wisconsin-Whitewater a couple years ago. You know, any, any game that I, I even mentioned that last year, every game that, that I've watched Mary Harden Baylor lose since 2018 has been because they got out-physicaled. It's just a rare group that's able to actually do that. Riley, of course, we've known there's a lot of turnover in this year's squad, a lot of new faces, a lot of new guys in key positions. Um, is that part of what we're seeing right now, I assume, right? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, as Corey mentioned, the offensive line, you see that a lot, right? I think your other positions, there were some guys who got game experience last year, were, were asked to step up a little more this year at positions like receiver and running back. But the offensive line, they, they got several new stars there, and I think you're seeing it. Uh, Isaac Fay looked good when he had protection there in the pocket, but I think you saw the pocket break down more often than not in some of those positions where Trinity was able to get into the backfield and cause some disruption. I don't know we should be talking more about Trinity in the end, though, or UMHB, because there's some rare air going on around here, and I just looked, up, looked this up for those wondering. 2006 was the last time they lost two games in the regular season at all. 1999 was the last time they started 0-2, and it also happened in 1998 when they started the darn program. And so, you know, how do you bounce back from this? To Riley, I guess, what are you hearing on the UMHB side with respect to concerns, thoughts about – you know, can this team get to the playoffs? So obviously they can if they win uh, the ASC. But, right. I mean, obviously there's concerns about these first two games and how things have gone so far. Exactly. And we just had the chance to talk with UMHB head coach Larry Harmon down the field. And that was something he brought up with saying, hey, we knew these first three opponents with Whitewater coming next week were going to be tough. They were going to test us. And it can only help us, right, with a young squad. I think they understood that the matchups that they were going to face were incredibly tough with these first three opponents. And then on top of that, you got a very young team, a lot of new faces starting on the offensive side of the ball. I think it's, it's just that combination where it – you know, in 1999, 1998, they were trying to get the program going. At this point, they're trying to reload and rebuild after losing a big group of fifth-year seniors last season, and I think we're seeing that come out with this strength of schedule. Corey, as much as I said about Riley watching more Mary Harden Baylor athletics than anybody else, I think you talk to more Texas football coaches than anybody else. I think it's in the title, basically, of the publication, right? Um, what are you hearing from people about, you know, where they think the echelon is right now for Division three football in Texas, and I'm going to just point out right now, I have not forgotten about Harden-Simmons as we have this part of the conversation. 
it, right now, you still have Mary Harden Baylor at the top. I don't think one game or even one season takes them off of that. They've been dominant for so long. It, it, you're going to need to see more than one year. I think after that, right now, Trinity is right there, and they're right, they're they're right on the cusp of grabbing that top spot. And then Harden Simmons still seems to be a step behind them. They're they're really good. They're a top ten team but they still seem to be a step behind. My concern with Mary Harden Baylor is confidence because you've lost two games in a row, three if you date back to the ones that were on the team from the national title game. You, anytime you start to doubt, and when that's a human thing, it comes in here, they've got to be careful of that, especially with such a big game this next week. They came out and fought tonight. They were much better. They looked better, and they're going to, they're going to be really tough. But I think confidence is something they got to work on right now. I'm going to go around the table and ask everybody their uh, favorite play, most memorable play from tonight's game. And since I'm blindsiding you with this question, I will start with mine. Uh, it will be, of course, uh, for me, Caleb Harmel going up and you know channeling his inner, I don't know, Ozzie Guillen, or pick your favorite uh, tall shortstop, because Ozzie Guillen is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> going up and making that interception, that's, uh, I think, the thing that's going to stick in my head the most from tonight. And then I will yield to Frank. I think after that struggle inside the five-yard line and then that sack followed by the punt block, followed by the next play being a touchdown to Caleb Crawford, that Caleb Crawford touchdown was so important because it felt like things were beginning to slip away a little bit from Trinity's offense. And to have the defense serve it back up to them and say, here it is, get it right this time. And Caleb Crawford basically almost picks that ball off the floor but never hits the ground with it it always stays in his uh, fingertips and then brings it in that was just an incredible catch at the right time for Trinity same play it was just very athletic it, it was incredible and you felt uh, you felt the crowd just kind of like there was some tension I mean <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. listen you you got the ball inside the five and you throw the ball three straight times and doink one off the left upright it, there is some tension going on, and, and you could feel it uh, on the sideline. You could feel it in the stands. They scored that touchdown, and at that point it was like, oh, it's ours. And uh, while I completely agree with you guys, I'll bring up one more. Legend Grigs Grigsby there in, in that first quarter, right? Trinity goes up 7-0, but it's still very much anyone's game. And then he breaks off that 46-yard that run and breaks several tackles. In, in terms of just the momentum, play I think that gave Trinity a lot of confidence to go up by two scores feels very different than being up by just one and I think that was a big big part of allowing Trinity to get the offense going early and involve the run as well as the pass I also want to say Isaac Fay he was good he was for he a was sophomore good. making his first collegiate start that was very impressive they found a guy that can that can move the offense he just needs a little bit of time and protection Five sacks is a little bit of that, for sure. Yes. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Go visit TexasFootball.com. TrueTheCrew.com. And on Twitter, especially D3FBHuddle. Now back to Greg. You know, I think a big reason why we saw Trinity get over the UMHB hurdle is that there's just less stuff that they're figuring out, right? The roundtable discussion there pointed out some things where you can see UMHB has good pieces and talent, but they're figuring out how it all works together right now. Trinity, on the other hand, they know exactly who they are. You've seen them play at a very high level against two very good teams in the first two weeks of the season. I have. And they were ready to go. You know, they're in mid-season form, to put a cliche to it. 
Trinity, you know, they, they look ahead now to the SAA where they're going to be favored the rest of the way. Barry probably looks like the strongest challenger to them. UMHB, on the other hand, they're going to go back to Belton, regroup as best they can and get ready for Whitewater, who, you know, might be playing the best football in the division currently. Whatever happens next week in Belton changes nothing for the crew. Win or lose, they've got six weeks to get ready for Harden-Simmons, and that's really the game that's going to determine whether or not UMHB is going to participate in this year's playoffs. It's really tough for UMHB with a really unsettled quarterback situation going into their first two games against Caleb Blaha and Tucker Horn. That kind of contrast really stands out. Uh, Isaac Fay, like you all said in the in the roundtable, he did some really good things for UMHB. He could really be good by the end of October when they need him to be. You can find a lot of post-game interviews from this game by looking at the In the Huddle feed on X. Uh, Frank, Rossi, and I talked with Jeremy Urban. We talked with Tucker Horn, and we talked with Caleb Harmel. I asked him about the play that I pointed out in the roundtable. I don't know. I'm just going to get all the baseball references here in this part of the podcast. That isn't even true. But here's Caleb's take on that play. What vertical is that to go up and get that football? I don't know. Everybody was talking about it on the sideline. I didn't really know how high I got up or, you know, that I jumped that high. But everybody said I had some pretty good hops. So I'm going to have to check the film, and then maybe I'll DM, DM you, let you know, you know, how high I got up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need to check that out. That was pretty okay. damn impressive. Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Monon Belt. Budavistic. Gallardi. Muhlenberg. Worcester. Harmel. I don't remember if I've gotten that right before. That's how you pronounce Caleb Harmel. I appreciate that he doesn't hold it against anybody who has been saying it wrong for so long. Uh, really uh, way too good a player. First team All-American last year. Caleb Harmel, big, big interceptions. We weren't sure if he was going to play. He comes out, plays a, a fantastic game. Two interceptions. One, like you said, one of the best plays you're going to see this season. And, you know, Trinity's defense standing tall, getting the job done important win for them i think psychologically as much as anything else to get over uh umhb other big game that we are focusing on here at the top of the podcast of course greg i teased it uh it is the uh, number four johnny's versus the number eight warhawks we're going to be flipping those rankings around a little bit after this past week but in front of fifteen thousand plus people fifteen thousand two hundred and thirty six to be precise, 13th largest crowd in Division Three history saw a game in which you would think that uh, things were not going well for Whitewater, right? They lose their starting quarterback to injury. St. John's comes back from a 21-7 deficit, scores twice in the final 206 of the first half to tie the game going into the locker room. And then St. John's comes out and scores first. They score on their first drive. They get the first possession. They get the ball coming out of halftime. They go up 28-21. And then what? And then Whitewater goes back to what was working early in the game, running the ball. And you get big plays from Tamir Thomas in particular out of the run game. And they shut down St. John's offense. And, you know, before you know it, Whitewater ties it, goes ahead. Now they're up two scores. Now all of a sudden it's 56 to 28. Whitewater dominant the whole game. Something that is really interesting to see from this Whitewater team they are really refocused, I guess, on running the football first as an identity. And it's not just three or four yards 
straight up the middle, uh, that kind of thing. They are they are getting huge chunks uh, out of the run game, a lot of explosive plays. Tamir Thomas has been great in the first two weeks. And Wisconsin-Whitewater, we talked about their front eight games. They're two games through, 2-0 two and o against two ranked opponents. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. Greg, I'm going to break the podcast format here a little bit, and I'm just going to give out my game ball now because I want to keep talking a little bit more about UW-Whitewater and about Tamir Thomas. Tamir Thomas gets my game ball. Thomas, the numbers on Saturday, 179 yards on 17 carries, three touchdowns. You touched on it just a moment ago, right? Ripping off some big games. When Whitewater has had these really great running backs, and I'm I, you know, I'm just going to be cognizant of the fact that that I'm not going to put Tamir Thomas onto the Justin Beaver pedestal right just yet, right? Obviously. But when they've had, you know, ordinary to above average running backs, right? The guys who have been workhorses for them, but they haven't broken out a bunch of big runs, right? And this is a guy who, you know, had a 59-yard run on Saturday, had multiple runs of double-digit yards. This is not just three and a half yards and a cloud of rubber pellets. That was a really impressive performance on Saturday. And that is why Tamir Thomas gets my game ball. Tamir Thomas was great. Also, Jason Sinitti, really uh, excellent in his role coming in, not, not necessarily off the bench. They both, uh, he and Alec Ogden both played in week one. Alec Ogden went out early in this game, did not return. Jason Sinitti, 11 for 16, 175 yards, three touchdowns. So, you know, really a solid quarterback play from him. And, you know, if Alec Ogden is going to uh, miss any kind of time, uh, they feel like they've got a good chance to go forward and be successful with Sididi. Alec Ogden with his arm in a sling to end the game on a Saturday. And I left out, of course, a Tamir Thomas touchdown catch. So let me throw that in there as well. Greg, why don't we just go ahead and do your game ball while we're in game ball mode? Pat, my game ball is going to go to Noah Garcia, running back Harden Simmons. Sorry to uh, Keith McMillan. I know we like to balance offense and defense with the game balls, but this week, no, two running backs. Uh, Noah Garcia, running back Harden Simmons, gets my game ball. Harden Simmons opened the second half trailing 21-14 at UW Lacrosse. Garcia's first three touches in the second half were a 56-yard touchdown run to tie the game, and then consecutive carries. 14 and seven yards that kickstarted a 97 yard touchdown drive that gave Harden Simmons a 28 to 21 lead. Ultimately the final score of the game, Garcia finished the game with 144 yards on 17 carries and two touchdowns. And for that, for those clutch carries in the second half of the Cowboys big win at lacrosse, Noah Garcia gets my game ball. Definitely questions right now about how good lacrosse is, right? If you think about the first 30 Mm, 45 minutes even of that game uh you know one of the big hits on lacrosse is they had kind of a two quarterback system last year one of those guys graduated kaiser helterbrand is still here kaiser helterbrand i thought played really well for big portions of the game on saturday finished completing 15 of 19 passes for 196 yards uh with 178 yards on 18 carries on the ground but threw a key pick but fumbled the ball on the five yard line but I think he had an illegal forward pass. I know they called instead ineligible man downfield. All those kind of key mistakes in the final, I don't know, five minutes of the game even really 
we have to keep a very close eye on lacrosse and oshkosh and river falls and whitewater in this race i know people are writing off lacrosse and i'm not quite ready to do that just yet i guess is what i'm trying to say no and if you think hardin simmons is really good and our poll certainly thinks that hardin simmons is really good lacrosse was you know played ahead of this game until the third quarter they were you know consistently ahead or tied didn't trail until the third quarter and then you know hardin simmons defense stepped up and didn't allow lacrosse to uh, come back and tie the game or get a lead. So I think lacrosse looks like they're missing that, that, that other element of the go-to receiver, go-to running back that they had in the last couple of years uh, to complement Kaiser Helterbrand. Uh, you know, here he is over a hundred yards rushing to go along with his 196 yards passing. So uh, a little, a little, one player dimensional in the lacrosse offense right now, but a lot of games left for somebody to step up and roles to get defined there. This is also a time of year where if you are new to division three football, you come in and look at the D three football.com top 25 and have complaints. Boy, do people have complaints and you know, someone might come in and look right now at our number 17, number 18 and number 19 teams who are a combined zero and four. And say, how about my team? My team is 2-0. Shouldn't being 2-0 count for something? I was like, yeah, 2-0 counts for something. There are 50 teams right now in NCAA Division Three football that have started off 2-0. I'm not a math major, but I think I don't have to tell you that we can't put all 50 of those in our top 25. So um, just keep that in mind. Greg, uh, as always, I think the voters are really focused on who you've played and how you've played against them. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a win as long as you look like you belong, I guess. Eye test is absolutely a thing when you only play 10 games and you don't have a lot of non-conference games to, to go with. No, winning percentage is certainly a factor in the top 25 but we don't have strict criteria like they do for selection and seeding. So yeah, you can use the eye test. You can see, you know, what looks good qualitatively to you. You can, you know, you know, the relative strength of certain teams. Our voters are familiar with the strata of teams and, you know, you sort of know what you can learn from a team depending on who they've played. So just to pick one out of the air, Carnegie Mellon, has two shutout wins to start the season. But how much do we really know about Carnegie Mellon with wins against Geneva and St. Vincent, right? You know, you expect Carnegie Mellon to win those games pretty handily, but it doesn't tell you really how good Carnegie Mellon is. And so Carnegie Mellon kind of sits static in the poll um, without moving up a whole lot. Whereas, you know, for me on my ballot, John Carroll this week did not play a game. They moved up a little based on what I saw from Wisconsin Whitewater. Yeah, they did for me too. I'm glad you uh, brought that up, right? They played UW-Whitewater not just competitively, but basically competitive down to the final play back in week one. And then Whitewater does what it does on Saturday. Um, There was a lot of discussion about this as the game was coming to a close on Saturday at uh, Trinity. It's like, how do voters then go and take the... Trinity lost to St. John's. St. John's got doubled up by UW-Whitewater, shall we say. Uh, and there are so many other things. Like That's one of the great things, really, Greg, about this season and about last season is that all of these top teams are playing each other. We have so many data points to, to play with, so many head-to-head games 
to take a look at. And I love it, man. As I've said multiple times, it just makes Division Three football right now so much fun to follow and to cover. Agree 100%. We're getting high-level action way earlier in the season than we typically get it. We're not having to wait for specific conference games within leagues that might have two or three of these top-ranked teams. We don't have to wait for the playoffs. We're getting some really... Uh, exciting games and good information right out of the gate. And, you know, some of these teams are probably going to play each other later. And that makes it, it that makes the, the playoff game interesting to see how those teams adjust and react to what happened 10 or 12 weeks ago. See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. Now with Billy Crocker on Fast Five, head coach Eastern, two games in the program's history and one of them a win. Congratulations, Coach. Uh, tell us a little bit about the excitement of that game on Saturday night. Yeah, well, well, thanks, Pat. Thanks for, you know, having me on and thanks for, you know, uh, recognizing our, our first win. What, no, it was, it was amazing, um, you know, just to kind of see everything come to fruition, um, you know, and I realize it's only one game right now, but it's it's historic for this, for this school and there's been so many people who have put in so much work uh, to kind of make this a reality and, and also just, and to do it the right way, um, you know, which, which I think we've, we've done here so far. I mean, we've, we've allocated a lot of resources, a lot of man hours and, and manpower to doing this and to see that come, you know, as soon as it did in, in a conference game too, um, you know, was, was pretty outstanding. And, and honestly that that's all great, but I'm, I'm really more happy for the the guys in that locker room, the the young young men in that locker room, because it is a bunch of a bunch of young guys in there. The guys who played key roles for you on Saturday night. So how many of them, like you know, took a big part in your develop, developmental season last year? And for how many are these literally like the first few weeks they've been playing college football? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's probably. 70% first time playing college football and 30% guys that were with us last year. Um, you know, so, you know, if you look at our defense, a lot of that is, you know, guys who were with us a year ago going through some of that stuff as, as sort of a club sport. Um, and then, you know, you look at us offensively and it's almost the opposite to an extent um, with a true freshman quarterback, the vast majority of our, of our offensive line being true freshmen, um, you know, and, and those kids just did a great job last night we talk to coaches of first year programs or of young programs and they say there's like two ways to go. You could put all of your great tweener guys, your two way guys, put them all on offense. You're going to have a lot of excitement and people will get jazzed up that way. Or you can put them all on defense and you keep the games close and maybe you squeak out a couple of wins that way. What camp do you fall into or neither? You know, maybe probably neither, probably a little bit in between. You know, I think we went out and recruited guys, at positions we thought they would play. Now we've switched a couple guys here and there, but um, you know, for the most part, you know, where we brought a lot of guys in, they have, they have stayed for us, you know? Um, and I think that's helped us develop a little continuity and, and, you know, get them into positions where they feel comfortable too. You know, I think, you know, we, we have our scheme that we wanted to do both offensively and defensively, but I think per, uh, football is a, a personnel game more than anything. And, you know, you got to do what your what your personnel dictates. You had a big challenge last night in just weather, waiting out the beginning of the game. Uh, what was it like, uh, you know, just trying to contain guys' excitement or maybe even your own excitement? How did that go? 
Yeah, I mean, it was hard. I mean, you know, Penn's been a, it was a gracious host and they will be for a few more, but you know, it's not our home locker room. Right. You know, it's a, it's sort of a small visitor locker room. I, I've spent some time in there when, when we used to play at Franklin field when I was at Villanova, um, you know, and it, you know, it was hot, it was small, um, you know, just trying to keep it light with them a little bit in and out. Um, you know, that's always a challenge no matter where you are, um, you know, going through those delays. I'm glad the delays were on the front end of the game versus them being throughout the game. Um, that way it was, all right, we never hit the start button and had to reset things, you know, from that standpoint. So I think, you know, I thought we came out a little flat in the first quarter, um, you know, to an, ex- to an extent. And then, you know, as the second quarter progressed, I thought the guys did a better job. But I mean, you talk about it, right? I mean, you guys are playing in an historic building right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's awesome. You know, it, that just goes to, I think, you know, our administration could have said, you know, so our, our field's not going to be ready. You're going to go play at a high school down the street. Sure. And, you know, I did not want that. Um, they, they knew that. Um, but they were committed to, to doing this and giving these guys the experience, you know, to letting them have the best experience they could have as being a part of building this program. All right. Next week, DelVal, bit different, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're the... They're, they're the cream of the crop in our league. They're sort of the standard right now in our conference. Um, you know, they represent us in the playoffs the last few years. And, you know, that's going to be a, you know, sort of a measuring stick for us. You know what I mean? I think our kids are, you know, they're going to be fired up for that, for that challenge, but it'll be a challenge for sure. They're going to play with, you know, a lot of older guys, you know, juniors and seniors and fifth year seniors and transfers, um, you know, you know, sort of that thing. And, and guys who have experience too, not just older guys, but just experience. And, um, you know, we're not there yet. We won't be there for a while, but, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to see what we, we can do. And I'll say the one thing about our guys is they're not, they're not going to be scared of anybody. All right, Greg, just to say Billy Crocker, obviously super good at the fast five. I don't think he had a clock in front of him, but he finished this last question right on the five-minute mark. That's a guy who could definitely have a future in broadcasting in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, he hit the post there on the money. It's been, you know, a really impressive opening couple of weeks for Eastern. They were close to TCNJ last week before a couple of late scores put that game out of reach for Eastern. Alvernia was not able to get those late scores that TCNJ did. Instead, Eastern got the clutch fourth-quarter touchdown and then made the clutch interception in the end zone to seal it. I was watching this Saturday night, Pat, and the venue there at Franklin Field is very cool. It sounded like there was a great energy in that place. There's obviously a good deal of excitement around Eastern football. They're undefeated in MAC play in their history, and I think you can go down the line and see some more places that this team can win games this season. If they're able to beat Alvernia, then they might be able to win one or two more games on that schedule, too. That would be a very successful season, first full season for the Eagles of Eastern University. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. Stat of the week for me, Greg, was 23 to 14. In a week where we had a number of scores that were pretty darn unique and which we will talk about later, I had a couple of hours on Saturday where 23 to 14 kept coming up. It was the halftime score between Kane and her sinus, halftime score for Rockford and St. Scholastica, halftime score for Grove City and Waynesburg, final score between Greenville and Eureka. You know, this being Division Three, most of these 23s are not the result of two touchdowns and three field goals. They're well more likely to be the result 
of three touchdowns, a field goal, and a missed or blocked extra point. Missed extra point for St. Scholastica, came back to bite them. They left Rockford and Jalen Ray, a guy we've talked about on this podcast before, in position to win on a really fun two-point conversion play, and Rockford at home beat St. Scholastica 38-37. to Pat, my stat of the week is three rushes, three yards, and two touchdowns. Not all that impressive, but that is the rushing stat line for All-American defensive lineman Justin Blazek in UW-Platteville's 35-19 win at Dubuque. The Pioneers, they are not content to let Justin Blazek terrorize teams in just one half of the game. No, they are now deploying him in short yardage goal line situations, and that is going to be a fun thing that WEAC opponents can look forward to this fall. I heard so much WEAC this week, by the way, instead of WIAC. I'm, uh, I don't know where things are going with that right now. I can also imagine, you know, six foot five, two hundred forty-four pounds uh, of Justin Blazek lining up in the backfield and getting that carry. And that was one of the things where, when I saw it on the box score on Saturday night. It's one of those things where I went to go to find some evidence to make sure that was actually true. You know how it is, right? Guys with double numbers. Sometimes Mountain Union quarterback Braxton Plunk gets credited with a few tackles or whatever that should have gone to the other nine on that roster, Marcus Sahir. So I went to the Platteville website at the end of the night. There was no game story at that point, but I did find video evidence of it on Platteville's, uh, the football team's X account. So it definitely happened. Like, why coaches don't have enough to worry about now, right? No, absolutely. We've we've spent a lot of time talking about Whitewater and Lacrosse and Oshkosh and River Falls. Don't forget about Platteville. They they are they have been very impressive in the first two weeks. I'm a real wild one. We go region by region. We're starting with region one and what's fun in the one. And you'd certainly have to say that Coast Guard was having a lot of fun in region one on Saturday. Fun to the tune of ninety-three points in a ninety-three to twenty-four win against Anna Maria, there's your slightly less common score there. Uh, the Bears of Coast Guard, they lost to University of New England 44-28 in Week 1, and Anna Maria beat Westfield State 51-26. Both of those results got turned on their ears on Saturday. Usually you see a bunch of players getting carries for the winning team in a situation like this, but I'm not really sure that was the case for Coast Guard. They had seven guys carry the ball, but the top four got 46 of those 53 carries. Anna Maria, on the other hand, had 11 ball carriers on the day. Yeah, 93 points. Definitely fun, at least for Coast Guard. Maybe not so fun for Anna Maria. Pat Kings is having fun in the one as the Monarchs are off to a 2-0 start for the first time since 2019. On Saturday, they limited Misericordia to just 123 yards of total offense and seven first downs on their way to a 42-10 win. Russell Minor Shaw was 12 of 15 passing in this game with 149 yards and three touchdowns. Minor Shaw also rushed for 55 yards and another touchdown. Pat Kings was maybe, maybe a week 11 win against Wilkes away from getting into the NCAA tournament last year. They're off to a great start in 2023 with a pair of road wins. They will be at Delaware Valley in two weeks. Maybe. I don't think so, but mathematically possible that they could have been in the playoffs if they'd won that game against Wilkes last year. Stranger things may have happened last Selection Sunday. I promised more weird scores. I promised more baseball references. Uh, in a pitcher's duel in the two, that's uh, the Brockport-Susquehanna game. Brockport-Susquehanna game, which was so very close 
mere seconds away from being a 5-3 to three final. If not for, as I have to credit Greg for this, if not for the blown save in the final seconds in which crazy things happen. Craziness in which Josh Ehrlich heaves the ball downfield, finds Kyle Howes 49 yards downfield as Howes out jumps double coverage to come down with the ball on the one yard line. And then the guy who was all the scoring, the only scoring for Susquehanna on the afternoon, Christian Colasurdo with his second field goal of the day. This was a 19 yarder with two seconds left and Susquehanna gets past Brockport six to five. Yeah. Colasurdo had had a chip shot field goal earlier in the quarter blocked, but Susquehanna got the ball back with a buck 44 left. They converted a fourth down before that big catch. And then the kick gave them that win by a fairly unique score, unique to the point in which it was the first time since 1909 that Susquehanna had played in a game in which a team finished with five points. And Greg, obviously nobody else was in a pitcher's duel in the two. So Greg, who flew in the two? The Blue Jays of Johns Hopkins flew in the two this week, sort of. Christopher Newport sailed into Baltimore for a Saturday night game and really had Bay Harvey and the Hopkins offense out of sorts early on. Hopkins got jump-started in this game with a Josh Anderson 25-yard pick six. Early in the second quarter, the Blue Jays finally scored an offensive touchdown with just 21 seconds left in the first half to take a 14-7 to lead into the break. Hopkins held off a late CNU rally to win 20-14. to They moved to 2-0. Hopkins continues their NJAC series next week at Salisbury. It wasn't until you said that Christopher Newport sailed into Baltimore, Christopher Newport, the captains, that made me realize that you almost couldn't have a better name for a quarterback for Johns Hopkins than Bay Harvey, right? This uh, being Baltimore, right? Kind of at the peak of Chesapeake Bay. I apologize that it took me an extra week to figure that out. That's usually the sort of thing I should be right on. Game was very nautical. Greg, what do you see in the three? If you were up late and perhaps not creating content for this podcast on location at another site in Texas, you might have seen East Texas Baptist come roaring back from a 31 to seven halftime deficit to defeat Hendricks 38 to 37. The last minute of this game was wild, Pat. After surrendering the 24 point lead, Hendricks finally found an answer in the second half with a touchdown that made the score 38 to 37 with just 23 seconds to play. Hendricks went for two because that's what the people want, but that try came up just a little bit short. No worries though, because Hendricks recovered the onside kick, completed a 34 yard pass to get into field goal range. The Warriors had eight seconds to play with here, but they chose to kick that 39 yard field goal. That attempt missed and ETBU gets the win. The 24-point deficit is, of course, the largest deficit ETBU has rallied from to win in program history. I feel like you're speaking this one at me. Just throwing a hypothetical out there for a reason why somebody might not have tuned in to ETBU late on Saturday night. I totally got in in time to see ETBU take the kneel down in the victory formation and finish that game off. All right, in the three, I see you, Maryville. That's the Scots. They're off to a 2-0 start for the first time since 2015 after defeating center on Saturday by a 34-23 score. This is one of the many delayed games 
from this weekend. The Scots waited through three separate lightning delays for a total of two hours, and then they spotted Colonels uh, nine points before rallying for a 34-23 win, giving kickers their props. That's three connected field goals, by the way, for center to get to that uh, 9-0 mark. Uh, but, of course, then Maryville rallied, as I said, for that 34-23 win. Five touchdowns for Bryson Rollins. It's three through the air and two on the ground. And if Maryville is good enough to contend, that's a really nice boost for the USA South and someone who can challenge Huntington or Bellhaven. Sons, what the four by four's for. Pat, what's the score in the four? Well, the score in the four for Oberlin is a 37-35 win against Concordia Chicago. That is a victory which snaps a 13-game losing streak. Yeah, I mean, as streaks go, no, this isn't even all that long for Oberlin. The Yeomen have had losing streaks of 40 games and 44 games. Those are two separate losing streaks of that length in the past three decades. It's better not to let it get that far. Congrats to John Pont and the Yeomen. That's first-year head coach John Pont. They ran out the clock when they got the ball back, up by two with 2.52 to play. And always, Greg, a sigh of relief from me. So, like... Oberlin was my second choice. If I'd gone to Oberlin instead of Catholic, I almost certainly never would have had reason to start following Division Three football nationally, and I don't think you and I would be sitting here doing a podcast right now. Unlikely, no. Also, that's a really good turnaround for Oberlin. Toward the end of last year, they were playing games with 12-minute quarters and that kind of thing. Uh, they got some, got a decent class in. Looks like they have a decent roster size, and really happy to see Oberlin get in the win column. Pat, one score in the four that jumped out to me this week is Defiance 34, Adrian 17, but maybe it shouldn't have. Defiance was not in any position to win last week against Mount Union, but I think most accounts indicate that they played and competed better than expected. Adrian, obviously, pretty tough loss at Elmhurst in week one. Even so, seeing Adrian doubled up at home against Defiance is a surprising result. We're seeing the MIAA come back to earth a little here in the first two weeks and maybe a little uptick for the HCAC as well. Quick note on this one, Defiance with two 100-yard rushers in the game. Quarterback Jordan Ambrose ran for 144 yards and a score. Tyshawn Freeman added 106 yards and two more scores for the victorious Yellow Jackets. Defiance at Kalamazoo next week, Pat. Lots of buzz around that one. Buzz, 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 That's a Hornets reference, isn't it? Greg, this is one of those places where it's a school that needs a reasonable football program basically to stay open. Defiance is one of those schools that's on the margins right now. I think even under 600 full-time students and having 100 guys on a football roster who are incentivized to stay because they're having some success on the field, that's certainly a big positive for that entire institution. Yeah, you're right. Defiance is a team that really, or they're, they're an institution that sort of relies on their football program and a lot of coaching turnover there in the last several years, a lot of coaching turnover at weird times too. Yeah. Uh, but Bill Nickel right now has Defiance playing pretty well. They came back, they, they won three games in conference last year and now, you know, off to a one and one start this season. So, you know, maybe, maybe Defiance looking a little better than, than people think. Defiance in its last filing with the U.S. Department of Education, which is the only place I go to for enrollment numbers, 495 full-time students. Who's looking alive in the five? 
Wheaton is looking very alive in the five following their 30 to 21 season opening win over University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Wheaton, they were really in control of this game almost from start to finish. Giovanni Weeks with a steady 101 yards rushing. Ben Bonga over 100 yards receiving. Christian Carson's chipped in 99 yards rushing as well. So a nice compliment to Weeks in the Thunder backfield there. This is a win that could certainly boost Wheaton's selection and seeding prospects at the end of the season. Kudos to Wheaton for getting Oshkosh on the schedule. Like to see Division Three teams, you know, reach out to Oshkosh and and get them on the schedule. That's been a challenge for them. And also, kudos to Wheaton for taking care of their business to get their season off on the right foot. All the computers thought this game was going to go the other way. I didn't follow and understand necessarily why. Also, looking alive so far in the five is Central. They're off to a two and zero start. The Dutch back in Week One. They let up some late points to St. Olaf to make that game look closer than it really should have. And they made Illinois Wesleyan pay for its mistakes in week two in defeating the Titans by the score of 38 to 13. So is Central alive enough to challenge Wartburg? Maybe not yet, but they don't need to be until week nine on October 28th. And also Aurora looking pretty lively right now at 2-0. What's in the mix in the six? Six feet, six, six feet, six feet, six, six feet. I think in the mix in the six, got to think about how the MIAC is right now after two weeks because actually Bethel didn't look bad on Saturday against Wartburg. Uh, not defensively. They didn't look bad defensively. Offensively, Royals are going to be a struggle right now as they're still trying to replace an amazing quarterback. And now they have to contend with losing running back David Giebley as well. The entry as described on Saturday Sounds like it's a season ender, but you know, Bethel's still the favorite on that side of the conference. They can make St. John's sweat in their regularly scheduled meeting and perhaps once again in what is a likely rematch in the conference title game. I got to give Bethel some props because I've spent the entire preseason unpropping them. Like we talked about earlier with both of us moving John Carroll up on our ballot after a loss, I moved Bethel up as well. I mean, they held Wartburg to 16 points. They made... Niall McLaughlin looked like Carter Markham. I mean, literally on the live stats for most of the game, they actually uh, registered him as Carter Markham with numbers that seemed perfectly reasonable for their QB2 instead of their QB1. So Bethel obviously still has some things to do, some things to play with here coming into MIAC play. Yeah, finding a replacement for David Giebley is going to be difficult for Bethel. He's a he's a really, uh, really good player, really broke out in the playoffs last year, and that is a player that I think they were looking to probably center their offense around this year. And, you know, now it's going to be plan B, but Steve Johnson over three decades of experience there at Bethel, he can, if anybody can find a plan B, I think Steve Johnson can. All four of the teams competing for the Oregon cup are still in the mix, but George Fox and Lewis and Clark have notched the first victories in this multi-season cup competition. The Bruins outlasted Pacific 14-9, while Lewis and Clark had very little trouble with Willamette in their 38-7 win over the Bearcats. These four teams are going to play each other in non-conference games over the next couple of years, with the two teams with the best record in these Oregon Cup games playing an Oregon Cup championship game in 2026. Circle your calendars. This is a creative way to handle the scheduling problem for teams in the Pacific Northwest. I like it. They've managed to put stakes on these non-conference games against conference opponents, which I think is a really smart way to handle what is really otherwise not an ideal situation. Uh, let's talk about Willamette for a second, right? I mean, this is a, a school that just 
dismissed its head coach. We don't know anything about why. Literally nothing said other than, you know, the uh, the typical kind of HR type quote, which is to say Isaac Parker is no longer the head coach at Willamette. I would say, obviously, you know, they'd really struggled. They won last week against Laverne, but, you know, over the course of the couple of seasons that Parker had been the head coach. That's five and 25 over that, uh, over that span. I don't know what kind of disarray it is when you have that announcement on Friday, right before a game, but then a 38 to seven loss to Lewis and Clark kind of really un unravels all of the progress that you make with a week one win against Laverne. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. As long as there is an X or some other short form messaging service, we will put out the bat signal on Sunday afternoons for a question. And we get one from Reed Rosales at Reed Rosales asking, if all goes well, does Harden Simmons have a good chance to host throughout the playoffs? Is UMHB's only path to the playoffs through winning the ASC? Well, second half of the question, yes. And then how about the first half of the question? It's probably a little early to start projecting who's going to host games beyond the first or second round. If all, I mean, if all goes well, does hard Simmons have a good chance to host. I mean, maybe if they run the table, maybe it depends on if some of the other teams who can run the table also do Wisconsin whitewater is a chance to run the table, North central Mount union. Um, really you only have to be lined out as somewhere in the top four, 10 and 0 resumes. You don't even need to be 10 and 0. I don't, I believe St. John's was the number one overall seed last year with a nine and one record. So we'll have to see how Harden Simmons strength of schedule figure shows up. Wisconsin lacrosse can be weird in your SOS math because they play a couple of games outside of the division that don't really factor in. I think Endicott is going to be a really good piece for Harden Simmons strength of schedule. Harden Simmons could could come up with a, a really strong resume in the primary criteria and land a bunch of home games. It's definitely early to say, right? You mentioned North Central. You mentioned Mount Union. The Wyack champ, whether it's Whitewater or River Falls or something like that, is obviously a good candidate as well. Of course, there's also Wartburg. What you don't want to be in is a situation where, as Harden Sims, you don't want to then go lose to Mary Harden Baylor because that means that you are definitely stuck behind Trinity because Trinity's going to have that common opponent advantage where Trinity has beaten Mary Harden-Baylor, and in this projected scenario, Harden-Simmons would have lost to Mary Harden-Baylor. If all goes well was the caveat that was part of this question, and that involves, I suspect, winning out. At least they're in a position, Greg, where you know, they have a couple of non-conference opponents at the Division Three level who can certainly help you in situations like that. That October 28 game against UMHB, I'm not ready to say that that is a a gimme for Harden Simmons. They might come in favored, but I mean, there's there's a lot of rough history there for Harden Simmons, and that's going to be something that they'll be playing that week as well as uh, you know perhaps a, a an improved Mary Harden Baylor team. Everything I said about Central and uh, against Warburg a few minutes ago applies exactly the same to Mary Harden Baylor against Harden Simmons. It's even on the same Saturday. Thanks for the question. You can send us questions like that on the artist formerly known as Twitter. Look out for our call for that on Sunday afternoons.
Looking ahead to next week at games to watch. I could put another Mary Harden Baylor game on this list, or I could put another Whitewater game on this list. I think people will be paying attention to that game. I will also be focused on Susquehanna at Cortland. This is one of the very interesting games that we get this season now. As we've talked about, the formation of the Landmark Conference means that Landmark teams have a bunch of non-conference games that they need to go out and schedule. Empire 8 had a need to go out and schedule those games as well. And in the way that challenges work, you get your top team against another top team. And in this case, it is number 22, Susquehanna, going to number 10, Cortland. Susquehanna obviously had a lot to learn about itself this past week. They blew out Bridgewater in week one. You don't necessarily learn nearly as much from that as you do from a 6-5 to five win in which you nearly lose because you had a punt blocked out the back of your own end zone. Meanwhile, on the other side, Cortland has just been really lights out so far this season. I really like what Zach Boys has been doing at quarterback for, obviously, not just this season, right? I'm really interested in this because, you know, last week, Cortland against Lycoming, that is a game that had never been played in these teams in the 90s were two of the top 25 or so programs in NCAA Division III football multiple times over that uh, over that spread. So we got that game for the first time. We're getting this game as well, and that's what I'm looking forward to, among other games, on Saturday. Pat, this week I'm looking forward to the Cuyahoga Gold Bowl game between John Carroll and Baldwin Wallace. Kind of a must win for both teams if they want to have any shot at the postseason. I think Baldwin Wallace probably out of contention regardless of what happens going forward. John Carroll maybe, maybe with a close loss to Wisconsin Whitewater depending on how the rest of their season goes and maybe a decent showing against Mount Union could be in play at 8-2. and two. We'll see what happens there. You know, it's a rivalry game. Uh, this game usually is close. And, you know, the loser of this game probably on the shelf for the postseason, the winner maybe with a slight glimmer of hope uh, pending pending their, their their games against Mount Union. I mean, I got to see the Cuyahoga Gold Bowl in person, of course, Greg, when I talked with Jeff Behrman, the new head coach at John Carroll back in podcast number 328. John Carroll, obviously, in their first year with a new head coach, does not want to be giving that trophy back to its Cleveland area rival. Other games to keep an eye on on Saturday. I do not want to gloss over Trinity at Birmingham Southern, but Birmingham Southern has kind of stumbled its way through the first couple of weeks of the season. Obviously, they did beat McMurray. I get that. Um, and then, you know, obviously not looking good on Saturday against Huntington. Trinity will not have any problem getting up for this game from talking to people afterwards. They know what those games have been like the last couple of years. Also, you've got Linfield at Redlands. You've got Whitewater at Mary Harden Baylor. That's a game maybe some people have heard of. UW Lacrosse goes to Northern Michigan. That is a D2 school. Johns Hopkins and Salisbury in the Battle of Maryland. Now, not a battle of two ranked teams any longer. UW Oshkosh makes the trip to East Texas Baptist. Aurora and Benedictine. This is a low key, really big local rivalry game in that area between Lyle and Aurora, Illinois. On Friday night, you've got Springfield Union. Springfield is a team that, of course, over the course of the first two weeks of the season is unbeaten. And then Union is a team that is unscored upon, but those are wins against Hilbert and Worcester State. Suffice it to say that this will be 
a slightly different challenge for the Garnet Chargers. Linfield at Redlands this week. Linfield coming off of a 28 to 14 win at Denison. That's two long trips back to back for Linfield. And, you know, uh, Redlands look good in week one up at uh, Pacific Lutheran. And we'll see if Redlands has anything for Linfield at the runner on Saturday. Elsewhere, we've got the first game actually on the black turf, the first football game on the black turf, and that is Catholic going to Morrisville State for a 1 o'clock kickoff on Saturday, September 16th. Perhaps we are far enough into September that you won't melt your cleats off in the course of that game. Big game in the pack between Westminster, Pennsylvania, and Washington and Jefferson. One last game to keep an eye on. The other ones to spotlight on Saturday is between Rowan and Ursinus. Ursinus at Rowan. This is a rematch, as we all remember, of a 1999 second-round playoff game. A game in which Ursinus was sent on the road to play Bridgewater State in the first round, while Rowan got a first-round bye because the committee didn't know how to seed anybody, so they just seeded by win-loss record. Uh, Ursinus went up and won that game, and then they lost to Rowan by a score of 55 to nothing. But coaches from that 99 game, Casey Keeler, he's now the head coach at Sam Houston State. He's got two Division I FCS National Championships under his belt, one at Delaware, one at Sam Houston. And then Paul Gunther went on to ostensibly bigger and better things. He's now a defensive assistant coach with the Minnesota Vikings. All right, on the spot, and Greg, so we don't forget to do both halves of on the spot, you're going to go first. All right, Pat, this week in On the Spot, we are playing the On the Spot version of that Spider-Man meme where the two Spider-Mans are pointing at each other. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. Exactly. I found a few games this week, Pat, of teams that are very, very similar to one another, and I want you to pick winners for me. All right. I'm up to pick winners. I don't know if I'm up to get them right. First, a pair of Polytechnic Institutes playing one another. The Transit Trophy is on the line this week. Pat, who you got? Well, Transit Trophy, of course, has nothing to do with taking a bus or taking light rail. It has something to do with some kind of um, electronic little thingy bobber. It's RPI and WPI, and I'm going to take the engineers in this one. That's the engineers of RPI over the engineers of WPI. All right, next up on my list, Pat, we have Flying Insects. I foreshadowed this earlier defiance <laughs> at kalamazoo yellow jackets and hornets playing for the golden epi pen <laughs> i just made i just made that up boy it's like we should have a feature on this podcast where we create rivalry trophies for games what a cool idea that would be i'm gonna go with defiance i think i'm picking defiance to win i don't know how often i've ever picked defiance to win but i'm gonna pick them to win this one they're on a roll and finally Finally, Pat, out on the West Coast, as we make our way from East to West, out on the West Coast, we have a pair of Lutheran schools playing Cal Lutheran at Pacific Lutheran. Who you got? This game used to have a rivalry trophy attached to it also. Some kind of like Thrivent Cup or something like that, right? Pacific Lutheran, they've kind of struggled a little bit. Um, I'm going to go with Cal Lutheran in this one. Cal Lutheran over Pacific Lutheran. There we go. That is the the triumvirate of Spider-Men pointing at one another that I that I picked for this on the spot. We'll we'll workshop that name and come up with an even better one for the next one. I also 
am asking you to pick games. I also do not have a fancy name for it. But in week one, Greg, you may recall that the ECFC went 4-1. This is the Eastern Collegiate Football Conference. And then in week two, this is the one that just happened, the ECFC went 1-4. So there's another full slate of five non-conference games for the ECFC in week three, and I want you to pick the slate. Let's see. The first game, uh, we got three noon starts. A lot of reverse momentum here for the ECFC. It was not a, that was a rough week for for the ECFC after a really positive week one. Noon start, University of New England at Gallaudet. Gallaudet really struggling to start this season. University of New England, 2-0, as we'll hear more about in just a minute. Uh, give me the University of New England to go down to the Capitol and uh, get a win against the Bison. All right. Husson at Alfred State. Here again, I think I'm going to go... I'm going to go against the ECFC. I'm going to go Husson over Alfred State. Husson over Alfred State. Buffalo State at Dean. Ooh, here is, here's a, this is a difficult one right here. Dean, I really liked in week one. Last uh, Saturday night, not so good for Dean. Um, but Buffalo State, they have been really struggling for quite a while. Give me, give me Dean here. Dean over Buffalo State. Buffalo State has lost 26 consecutive games coming into this game against Dean. All right. Norwich at Castleton. Castleton, 2-0. Give me Castleton here to go to 3-0. Castleton over Norwich. And Mass Maritime at Anna Maria. Wow, what a what a dichotomy of styles this game is. I will take Mass Maritime to bounce back from their Chowder Bowl loss to win at Anna Maria. If my back of the notebook math is correct, you're picking the ECFC to go two and three. Yes. So it's time to grade how Greg did in on the spot last week. Last week, I asked Greg to pick for the cardinal directions. You know, the cardinal directions, north, east, south and west, whatever order you want to put those directions in. I wanted him to pick. A game involving a school whose name includes each direction. And then Greg, of course, decided to take it one step further and pick one of those teams to win each time. He picked Western New England over Westfield State, and Western New England gets him the W there, 46 to nothing. Greg picked East Texas Baptist over Hendricks. If you were listening to the earlier part of this podcast, you already know ETBU with the W over Hendricks. Never a doubt. Clearly, that is correct, even when they were down 24 points. On the north-hand side of the compass, picked Ohio Northern over Capital by the score of 40-7. to And then, Greg, what did we do with South? I don't even have noted which South team you picked, but they all lost on Saturday, Greg. So I think that's a, a three-and-one record. I feel like I had to pick Birmingham Southern. I mean, that is the logical choice. Birmingham Southern did lose to Huntington by the score of 16 to nothing. But considering you went above and beyond and uh, took four teams to win, not just four games, I think that is going to be the, uh, that's going to be the big winner. How do we do in quick hits then? All right. For quick hits, our upset picks this week were all pretty good, but not all correct. Salisbury did get upset on the road at Muhlenberg for the panelists pick that Frank picked Susquehanna who very nearly got beat at Brockport and Riley picked Ithaca, who also needed late heroics to get by Endicott. By the way, I don't think we talked about that. 
uh, Ithaca late score to get over Endicott. They trailed for a good portion of that game. Really good picks all around there. All six panelists correctly picked a two and one record for ranked teams making their debuts in week two. Linfield won at Denison as, as expected. Wheaton also won at home. Bethel, the lone ranked team debuting this week to open the season with a loss, 16-2 against Wartburg. For our surprise 2-0 teams, only Riley correctly picked a team that got to 2-0. The University of New England doubled up their win total with a 31-21 win at Plymouth State. Keystone, Alfred State, Endicott, and UW-Eau Claire all missed on their chance to get to 2-0. And in delicious rivalry games, all six panelists correctly picked Carroll to retain the Golden Glazer. And we were evenly split on the Chowder Bowl. Ryan Tips, Frank, and Riley all picked correctly that SUNY Maritime would retain the Chowder Bowl, 14 to 7. We keep ourselves accountable for our picks. So does Logan Hansen. You can uh, follow him on Twitter to get his even more broken down scoring. Uh, he applies a point value to how close each of us got. I hope to get at least a bonus quarter point for mentioning that you should never have glazed donuts and chowder together, whether that's your Manhattan-style clam chowder or your Boston clam chowder. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 333. We are a third of the way to 1,000. Yikes. Released on September 11 of 2023. Thank you for listening and keep an eye on our continuing coverage. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers, and you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. Very thankful. A bunch of new ones here over the course of the first couple of weeks. That's very helpful. Maybe you can't afford to support us financially, but you can still help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell your alumni group about this show. Give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined, because that also helps other people find the show. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using that D3FB hashtag. I tweet from at D3Football. Greg posts from Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. That is true. Message boards, forums. You can join that conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. If you're curious to read through what people have been saying about WIAC football, if you're curious to read through what people have been saying about OAC football since 2005. You could totally do that. I don't know that I would recommend that being a great use of your time to read through years and years of messages. Kind of start with maybe from the last couple weeks, but you can join that conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com and you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Thank yous to Frank Rossi, Riley Zayas, and Corey Hogue for joining us to discuss the Trinity Mary Harden Baylor game. Our theme music, this track right here, is called Power 2. It's by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find those on DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Eric Malouf, Bob King, Justin Parker, everyone at Trinity University. Keith McMillan, he was the OG host and the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. We're super grateful for that. He's still relevant. People still ask about him. He votes. He's around. I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen this far into the podcast. Uh, We're even more grateful, of course, that Greg Thomas is now our columnist for D3Football.com, has been for several years. And also, thank you, Greg, for continuing to show up and co-host this show with me as I run through your dinner time 
in Southern California on every Sunday evening, it seems. We do thank Tracy. Tracy got some flowers today. She is visiting family in Arizona this weekend. I see you're not in the clothes closet. You're out in the living room or whatever, right? I recognize this space now. Yes, slightly different location just because I can turn everything else off and I'm the only one here. I mean, I think a lot of podcasts are recorded in people's closets, right? I don't think that's a, I don't think there's any shame in that or anything unusual. No, not at all. But it does get stuffy in there over the course of an hour, hour and a half or however long it is it takes for us to get through the rundown and all of the Division Three games. Over 100 in a week. I think our efficiency is pretty good on covering games per minute of podcast. Well, I will say this. I will leave this part in. Right now, we've just passed an hour, 19 minutes, and 15 seconds of recording runtime. Plus, we'll have that eight and a half minute segment from San Antonio and five minutes of Fast Five, which means we've recorded an hour and 32 plus minutes of content for this podcast. Look down at the timer now, and that's how much I've cut out in order to get it to whatever length it ended up being. We haven't even started our bonus segment on our 50 best moments from the 50 stag bowls. And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs> <laughs>